This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Good evening, you're listening to 3RRR 102.7 FM and this is Plato's Cave, a film discussion show that will occupy your airwaves until 8pm. My name is Thomas Cordell and I am joined by Josh Nelson, Alexandra Heller, Nicholas and Cerise Howard is back. Welcome back to the cave, Cerise. Thank you, Thomas. Thank you, Alex. Thank you, Josh. Well, where, where have you been? I have been abroad. Yeah. Um, Ooh. Yeah. Uh, the, the abroad. Re- yeah, the Czech Republic, principally um, Prague and Pilsen, and um, a little bit of time spent also in Berlin and Geneva, Central Europe, just gadding about. Pilsen. Pilsen. Is that where Pilsen, Pilsen comes it from? It is. I've never been so close to the source <laughs> of that delicious, <laughs> delicious beer. That sounds fantastic. We're thrilled to have you back. Tonight. I am thrilled and almost awake. Yes, to be back. stay awake. <laughs> yes. We, we need your brain and your thoughts. Oh dear. Um, <laughs> on tonight's show, we are programmed just to do anything you want us to. We are the robots. And we'll be starting the show with a look at the new UK science fiction film, Ex Machina. Uh, We'll then turn our attention to a horror film from last year that was released on DVD in Australia a couple of months ago. Starry Eyes is a dark look at what it takes to achieve fame and fortune in Hollywood. And finally, we're going to take a look at a documentary that will soon be screening at the Audi Festival of German Films. The film is From Caligari to Hitler, German Cinema in the Age of the Masses. It looks at the films made in Germany between the two world wars. And look, from a film history point of view, this is one of the most significant eras of filmmaking. Uh, so keep listening to find out if the documentary does it justice. But first, let's kick off with Ex Machina. Yes, Ex Machina. As you mentioned, this is a sci-fi, sci-fi thriller, you could argue, from writer and first-time director Alex Garland, who's previously worked as scriptwriter quite often with Danny Boyle, actually, on 28 Days Later, Sunshine, Never Let Me Go, and more recently, Dread. The film is about a computer programmer, Caleb, played by Donald Gleeson, who wins a competition to spend a week at a reclusive, well, cabin in the woods, I guess you could call it a very high-tech version at least, belonging to Nathan who's the CEO of a web tech corporation played by Oscar Isaac. And he soon discovers that Nathan has a secret. He has a secret. And that is he has invented a fully functioning AI in the guise of Ava, played by Alicia Vikander. And what follows is a series of, of, I guess you could call them therapeutic sessions between man and machine, in which Nathan gets Caleb to put Ava through her paces along the lines of the Turing test, that is to determine, a test to determine whether or not uh, Ava can pass as a human in a very similar manner and it clearly evokes the Voigt-Kampf test in Ridley Scott's Blade Runner. And the result of this is a very sort of suitably tense and stylish thriller that riffs on a number of sort of um, staples of the sci-fi genre in terms of themes, including the kind of the blurring of the lines between human and technology, issues of machine sexuality and desire, and I guess the unconscious impulses and ethical underpinnings that drive these kinds of technological discoveries. I really love this film from the point of view of uh, production design. I think the cement-clad glass cubicles of Nathan's residence are wonderful and wonderfully clinical and really suited to that type of the therapeutic sessions that go on between Caleb and Ava. And I also really love the design of Ava. I think it's almost a contemporary reimagining 
of Eve, the robot from Fritz Lang's Metropolis, particularly in terms of the the torso design. And I'm sure we'll mention uh, Eve, or at least Fritz Lang, later in the show. There's also some really Kenny casting in this, and I think the casting of Donald Gleeson is interesting because he played a cyborg in an episode of the Charlie Brooker-led anthology Black Mirror. So you have an interesting subtextual layer where the film is playing on the, I guess, the slippages of identity between man and machine, given that in this one he's established as the source of, the, of humanity. Where I think this film lost me a little, particularly in the third act, is I think Garland ultimately plays it pretty safe. Although there is one one juncture within the narrative that feels like the film is going to opt for a far more radical uh, narrative resolution. And I think it, it acknowledges it, but almost dismisses it just as quickly. And I felt like it almost seemed like something from an earlier draft, perhaps, um, the other thing I wanted to flag is I think this film is really conflicted in terms of its gender politics. And I'm not going to sit on, on one side of this fence or the other, but I think it's fascinating because on the one hand, you have quite an overt critique of gender politics in terms of the way Ava is constructed. She's overtly feminised. Her body is clearly sexualised. The, the fact that a robot can have a sexuality or can flirt is a key part of what potentially makes her human and, and may you know, give her the pass of the, of the Turing test. But at the same time, uh, I think Garland loves filming uh, the female form in this film. He lavishes it. He spends a great deal of, of attention on various female forms, not just of Ava. So on the one hand, it's, it's bringing attention to objectification, but I think that the argument could be made that at the same time it's objectifying females. So discuss, as Cerise would say. Is that you throwing it <laughs> <to> me, Josh? <laughs> well, look, discuss. Uh, discuss. Uh, there's always that bind, isn't there? If you're going to uh, approach issues of objectification of any sort of body on screen, you can't help but almost show it in order to critique it. So that that bind is a... um, I mean, how do you dodge that? Uh, Look, I really enjoyed this film too. I saw it, uh, I have to confess, in rather jet-laggy haze on Friday, just gone, but still got sucked into its atmosphere. Its production design is is gorgeous. Often pretty spartan, uh, but uh, it's just what you can do with a a well-placed light or two and um, some nice uh, uh, Scandinavian design uh, and and nice uh, Scandinavian outdoor settings as well. Just a casual glacier as a backdrop while Oscar Isaac suns himself. (laughs) I actually didn't even recognise him. It was bizarre. I'd forgotten who was even supposed to be in this film. Um, The casting actually is wonderful. And Domhnall Gleeson, I'm, I'm interesting too because he played actually for me a pretty similar character in frank this naive guy who's got tickets on himself uh who has wildly overestimated his own abilities gets in far out of his depth amongst uh uh you know going toe-to-toe with a, a genius of an unorthodox sort and um, sent to a reclusive location yeah and sent to a reclusive log cabin <laughs> um in a scandinavian like environment yeah yeah you're right this one totally rips off frank so. <laughs> Um, Frank beats Metropolis. <laughs> yeah. That's the Plato's Cave poster quote. Look, there is plenty that can be talked about in this film, but one of the things that I picked up on that I found most interesting is a, a moment of reflexivity in it where it, um, without wanting to give away anything, but it it brings to the audience's attention as it brings to uh, the Domhnall Gleeson character's attention that uh, the film and then... Um, 
And oh, I can't remember which one's Caleb, which one's the other one now. Caleb's uh, Donald Gleeson, and okay. Nathan is uh, Oscar okay. Isaac. That, that Nathan has pulled a little bit of a, a misdirection. The, the term, a very cinematic term, is actually employed in in his dialogue, and that that for me is interesting. It's it's like the the wizard behind the curtain just showing a, a little bit of a, a trick. It's a, both a narrative trick, but also a, the way that. Um, uh, the, the protagonist is going to find out that he might be a little further out of his depth than he thought. And I think it's quite adroitly done. Um, that, that's another uh, a strategy that can uh, bring a film undone to, all too easily, that, uh, a little reflexive tactic like that. But equally, it, it's narratively um, appropriate as well. So I think it's a very smart film. Uh, smart filmmaker, I gather, uh, directorial debut, but, you know, he's no slouch. Alex Thomas. <laughs> Alex um, Thomas. Sure, look, I'll, I'll jump in. I think, yeah, just following this idea of objectification, I mean, I think absolutely the film is grappling with this idea and it, it is tricky about how much do you therefore show. I felt it was really consciously playing with the idea of the male gaze. It was making you very much aware that you were looking at this constructed body. And just like, um, I've gone blank now, Caleb, just like Caleb, he's aware from the start that she is a construct and yet he's still feeling emotional attachment towards her. I think the film is kind of playing with us in that kind of malgazy way we were encouraged to look at this beautiful body while also being constantly reminded this is something that's been assembled and possibly can be disassembled and it's quite alarming i mean i found this film a real mix of feelings i found it very sensual and very disturbing for finding it sensual and i quite enjoyed that conflicting emotion so i, I thought that was actually quite quite smart and there's a film about bodies i mean you've got two very different ty- types of male bodies as well oscar isaacs is sort of this Alpha male IT kind of douche bro who is all, you know, he's sort of this new agey thing. I mean, he always seemed topless and all, and all buff. And, and poor old Donald Leeson is just making a real career for himself, playing the kind of meek, sympathetic character who sometimes you feel sorry for and sometimes you think is a little bit pathetic. <laughs> yeah. So I do like this idea of the con- constructed body. And I just want to echo again, I think the sets in this are really stunning. I love the fact a bunker with all these reflective surfaces and glass that gives the illusion of space and freedom, but it's also full of constraint and it's got all these amazing artworks in it and it reminded me of Mona I mean it's like a film was I shot exactly the same thing isn't it like that like but cement walls as well yeah and I think there's a bit of a class critique in that which is that in the future the art is going to be owned by these billionaires who have this little bunker and the pristine environments which have been denied and gradually being denied to the rest of us are going to be owned by by billionaires so you know only people like this character is going to enjoy the natural landscape um yeah look i love the ideas of this film i, I think that the interesting misdirection i found in this is it felt like it was sort of a very blade runner-ish film at the start in terms of the way it was dealing with what is it to be human and then i think it switches modes and it becomes more of a bit of a stepford wives type narrative yeah i, I really found this fascinating I'm, I'm still going over it in my head loved it really enjoyed this film a lot I saw Ex Machina in what in other circumstances might have been the worst possible scenario. Um, but like you, Cerise, I saw it in a bit of a kind of strange... I had a very high fever, very, very mm. high fever, and I saw it in a, a very crowded cinema by myself, surrounded by really drunk people, which... I was I'm, in that screening. You wouldn't sit with I'm, me. It was weird. I was so sick. I didn't want to... You're a nice guy. I didn't <laughs> want to give you my plague, and I was all snuffly, and I thought, no, I'll go sit with the, the drunk people. Sit with the drunks, yep. And... Um, 
And I mean, I'm making it sound like a nightmare, but honestly, I think I was in just the right headspace <laughs> for this film because I was in love with it in seconds, like just from the outset. I loved that it looked like it was filmed in Mona. I loved, um, I loved the textures in it. We're talking a lot about the production design, but just even the textures. There's all of these smooth, glassy textures but there's also just the the rugged outdoors um there's a beautiful shot at the start of a wall of post-it notes that is just such a simple thing to describe it verbally but it's just such an exquisite image in in this film and combining this with that that central motif of the jackson pollock painting and of course pollock brings a whole lot of uh a whole lot of meaning a whole lot of stuff that brings meaning comes with the, when you put a jackson pollock painting in a film more than that, though, I loved I loved Oscar Isaac's beard. I love his little dance. I, I had a little teenage girl moment about the beard and the dance. I wish I was dancing with Oscar <laughs> Isaac. Just not cool. Not adult thoughts. Not adult thoughts at all. Perhaps a little adult. Maybe a little, <laughs> <laughs> a little pervy else. adult. Yeah. But even um, that scene is quite discomforting as well. It's, it's not so like, it's weird. Not an emotional it's, release. No, it's so tonally out of whack to the yeah. rest of the film. It's and like I think Boogie that's... Nights. Is that Alfred Molina? <laughs> Mr. <laughs> Mr. Alfred Molina. <laughs> but I mean, that scene is really there to rupture the mood, isn't yes. it? It's so strange. It's, it's uncanny. You... It's an uncanny... Yeah, and you don't know whether to giggle mm-hmm. or whether to find it creepy or just to enjoy it. Yeah. That's actually one of the things I really liked was the... I, I really liked how Isaac... Um, really problematises this kind of sop, soft hipster tech guy mm. that... that culturally i think we think of as this sort of almost like a little yeah very soft we think of that kind of masculinity as being very soft and this film really brings complicates that in a in a really disturbing way ultimately and i really like how it plays with actually making him quite charming but actually making him quite horrendous at the same time i think there's some fascinating like you said really smart stuff going on with that well he's an it guy in the post gamergate world very much i mean how much has that change idea of what kind of online masculinity is all about mm-hmm. it's now something very dark and sinister and he's grooming i mean this whole idea of him mm. grooming the younger the younger man. Um, it's it's really it's a really fascinating um, performance, I think, by Isaac, especially and his beard. All right, <laughs> I, I did really like the women in this film, um, and I, I emphasise women plural here. Um, and I pick up on what you were saying, Josh, about these issues of, of objectification around women as objects. It's a really interesting almost conceptually doomed idea from an ideological perspective like how do you how do you not how do you grant subjectivity to an object is the problem with ai and when you bring gender into that it's almost like a you know it's a bit of a a pandora's box and race too actually that's where i was going and that's why this film that's mm. precisely where i was going with this it's very difficult to talk about this without giving away too much about the ending but Mm. why this film really worked for me on the gender politics front was because if you look at gender politics as boys versus girls okay it's pretty simplistic why are they sexy fembots um but if you bring intersectionality into this and you start looking at race in particular as you said cerise and realizing that there's different levels of power between different women um that's where this film starts getting really interesting especially in that last act there's a scene again i can't give away any spoilers but um bodies come into play in a really explicit literal way about women and power um, that I, I just found absolutely devastating and very intelligent. And um, intersectionality is not something that genre film is often renowned for dealing with. And I think that it's, um, its intersectional politics is super interesting, maybe problematic. I'm not saying that it's totally awesome, but um, I, I really like that it was actually thinking 
in these quite complex ways about gender. Yeah, I think you're spot on. And I didn't want to give the impression that I don't think there's a critique in there. I think the, the issues you've raised, particularly in terms of race, race and the female body doubles that critique in, in a really overt manner, particularly given the status of those characters within the narrative. But I do think there is scope for an argument or a debate in terms of the camera and when and where the camera is used and I think some shots as you mentioned Thomas are really clearly putting the audience deliberately in an uncomfortable alignment with the to be looked atness of the kind of female body but in some shots I, I was wondering did do we need to see as much as we're seeing here at this point and I think it's an, I think that's an interesting debate to have another thing I really liked about the film is I think there's some really interesting foreshadowing in the way it's written there's a lot of stuff that's very casually mentioned or referred to early in the film that then come is linked to again later in a way that's I think I think really smart and one of my favorite moments is very late in the film uh, Caleb uh, sorry Nathan compares himself to J Robert Oppenheimer who of course invented that he was the, the physicist who developed the atomic bomb and it nicely echoes an earlier scene where Caleb is listening to orchestral maneuvers in the dark in their song Anola Gay three triple ah. Oh. Now, we're going to take a look at a recent DVD Blu-ray release, Starry Eyes. Well, Starry Eyes is directed by Kevin Kölsch and Dennis Widmeyer. Uh, it came out last year. It was uh, funded through Kickstarter, a really successful Kickstarter uh, campaign. This was the big hit at South by Southwest last year on the horror front. I think Time magazine listed it as one of their, like, the, the big films to come out of last year's South by Southwest. There was a lot of excitement um, surrounding this film. Uh, not just in the US, but also in a lot of the, the horror genre film festivals around the world. It would be very easy, uh, overly dismissive, I guess, to call Starry Eyes Cronenberg's Mulholland Drive. Um, so I hesitate to do it because I don't think it goes anywhere near describing what makes this film so unique. But at the same time, it puts you in a ballpark about where we're going. The film... Um, I'll give you a rundown of what the film is about. How about I do that? All right. So, played by the remarkable Alex Esso, Sarah is a desperate wannabe actor in Hollywood. She's juggling a horrendous job at a fast food restaurant with a disgusting boss, with lecherous male friends, mean female friends, and she also suffers from a disorder called trichotillomania, which is severe hair pulling. Sorry, what's that called? Oh, damn. <laughs> damn your eyes, Cerise. It's trichotillomania. Nice work. I think I'm, I'm actually developing it now on air. I don't mean to make light Even of this disorder. Even through those headphones, but, um, it's remarkable. Yikes. She suffers from trichotillomania. <laughs> Home run. <laughs> Serenity now. <laughs> Sarah finally gets a break, it seems, and is called <laughs> Sarah gets a break and she's called in for an audition for a horror movie called The Silver Scream. But after an agonizingly awkward failed audition with two hilariously grim producers, she explodes into a fit of hair ripping in the bathroom stall. Now one of these producers witnesses this and they're quite impressed and they ask her to come back and audition again, but this time bring that level of intensity. From here, things begin spiralling for Sarah. Her friends get meaner, her job gets yuckier, and the more it looks like she might actually get a break, the less it seems she has to lose. Throw perhaps an unwise decision to drop a pill one night into the equation, and Sarah's world starts to explode in a frenzy of humiliation, violence and desperation, with her ambition for fame and success driving her through what can be best described as some pretty freaky, wild times. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, over to me. Good. <laughs> uh, excellent. Well, look, I... Um 
How about that? I'm, I'm surprised you haven't mentioned that synth score yet. That's oh, I've so, got it here. Yeah, I've yeah, got it in my notes. Yeah. I'm, I'm coming back there. Yeah, you, you, go. you go and I'll come in. Oh, all right. Well, actually, yeah, <laughs> well, aside from the it – is it is a very Goblin-esque score. And, in fact, a lot of this harkens back to 70s, 80s-ish horror, at least in terms of, let's say, the stuff peripheral to the main action. So the opening credits in a nice serif font, uh, simple primary colours. Um, and, and even Sarah reminded me of Jamie Lee Curtis, this long face, long hair, just the ingenue. Um, but, uh, yeah, look, I think what, what most interested me about this film was its, its suggestion that the construction of a certain sort of Hollywood glamour, and curiously it's of a, a glamour that is from a, a well-bygone era, not from the 70s, but well before. I mean, uh, Sarah has all over her wall images of the glamour queens of Hollywood from more like the 50s or so. Uh, I, I couldn't ever take my eyes away, especially from Rita Hayworth's image on, on the wall. And then there seems to be this suggestion then in this film that the construction of that very sort of glamour and success within Hollywood might be a function of uh, satanic sexual pacts made with film producers, which is not an entirely original premise because we've heard no shortage of um, uh, mythical but also doubtless very true uh, accounts of Hollywood starlets having to do grim, grim things to make it, you know, the, the whole casting, casting couch. couch. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and I think that's really at the core of this film is that, that myth, which isn't as mythical as I'm sure we are being rather uh, sort of 21st century type people, um, we would rather it were rather more a myth than uh, a fact. And I, look, I don't doubt there's still grim casting couch things going on today. And, of course, I couldn't help but wonder, you know, you go back one remove and think, all right, who cast this film? As a kickstart, I mean, I'm sure it's all above board, but, uh, you know... The, the, the conspiracy's got to you too, huh? Yeah, the, well, the producer paid me off, so... Um, uh, Look, there are a few grim laughs to be had in this film, even. The, the line, see you later, Tater Gator, will, um, will stay with me for some time. I mean, yeah, that, that little fast food restaurant she's working in is uh, enjoyably horrible. I think it's uh, very funny, this film, in a yeah, really there, there miserable, is, horrible yeah, way. Yeah, there is some misery. And, and, yeah, that lecherous boss is a... Uh, uh, yeah. Pat Healy. Pat Healy. The wonderful Pat Healy. I quite liked him in this film. Oh, really? I didn't click. Who's Pat, Pat Healy? Cheap Thrills, Pat Healy? Yeah. Cheap uh, Thrills and The Innkeepers are probably the two Innkeepers. of the more prominent films he's been in. Yeah, he's a great American indie actor. Yep. And uh, we are mentioning just in our, the previous film, uh, Josh, you brought up this business of, of objectification of women. There's a, a scene where... Uh, poor Sarah in this uh, ludicrous outfit for her job. Um, he's he's staring at her bum. The camera is staring at her bum, but it's for a, it's partly for a gag. Well, where does she keep that mobile phone that she's taking her calls from, uh, prospective jobs from? Which, uh, but equally, uh, it is straddling that very awkward fine line um, as to whether that's actually rather a little sexist bit of cinematography or not. Discuss. <laughs> I've missed your discusses. It, well, it's interesting because I think the film is dealing quite explicitly with these issues of uh, agency, um, ambition, authenticity, other words starting with A, uh, you know, this idea of self-exploitation that she's letting herself be exploited is a very complex thing to to address i think and i think that the film is is it's it sort of circles that all the way throughout in that is she a victim or isn't she a victim is her ambition so great that she is sort of transcending above her own victimhood it's a very weird politic i think that's undermining 
these questions, um, this, this, these issues of agency, I think, really drive drive the film. You know, is her is her ambition elevated above to the above a point where she knows that she's being exploited and she's actually okay with that? I find that mind blowing. I actually find that conceptually quite difficult to get my head around as a spectator when you have shots like that um, and when you know that this is something that she's wrestling with and this is this is you know this is what is causing her trauma um, but also that that dream and that hope is something that's propelling her forward through this quite dense mucky life that she's living it's I, I find it very it's a very kind of sticky film when it comes to these kind of issues. Well, it certainly does get pretty goopy. It's got one of my... Look, I saw this... I was a judge at Monster Fest last year, um, and this we this was the this was the best film. This got the best film, and it was almost a... It wasn't a unanimous decision, but I think it was pretty close, and I think um, Monster Pictures have been very wise to pick this film up and release it. I think it's a beautiful, beautiful Blu-ray. Um, it looks amazing, but it sounds amazing. You mentioned the soundtrack too the soundtrack is um it's done by the guy jonathan snipes who i don't know if you guys saw room 237 the amazing uh how would you describe it the shining the shining conspiracy doco yeah. oh, yes, conspiracy yes, yes, doco yes, yes. a yep. very strange wonderful little film mm-hmm. but snipes did the soundtrack for that as well so it's a really fantastic so it sounds as good as it, it looks but it's just got one of my favorite gore scenes that you don't really expect because we're not really setting this up as a particularly violent film but there's a scene with a barbell that I oh, really yes. loved, yes, and I just thought unpleasant. this is really just perfect yes. gore for yeah. me. You yeah. know, this is this is what I want. Um, yeah, it's not unlike a, a scene in the tribe you guys discussed while I was away. Curse oh. you all, because um, you really yeah. wanted to talk. I to us really about wanted that, to talk about that film. Yeah. Well, we were all on side with it. Yeah, all traumatized as well. All traumatized. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You mentioned the um the, the casting couch having that that, that sort of history, um, and also going back to that classical Hollywood period. And I think um, I mentioned Mulholland Drive too, and I think that this idea of the aspiring starlet and what what will a, a woman do for fame. It has such a fascinating history in Hollywood. I keep saying Mulholland Drive because I guess it's such an obvious point when watching this film, but there's an amazing 1928 silent pre-code film called Garden of Eden, which is without the without the barbell gore scene, of course, but it's it's dealing... I mean, it's basically about a young woman, a young female opera singer, and, mm. and what are the lengths that she will go. And there's these lines between being exploited and letting yourself be exploited, these lines between ambition and autonomy and how does... Ex- ideas of what we, exploitation fit into that. It's got a really, really fantastic, long, troubling cinematic history behind it. And uh, I was sure that this film would remind me of more films too with uh, similar um, you know, star is born wannabe type uh, plot lines only with that exploitation expo- and, and for some reason maybe it's because I'm still all a bit um, part of me is in Europe part of me is here I'm a bit confused perplexed this is live to air isn't it um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, I couldn't actually no, no other titles came straight to mind which is quite perplexing because this must have been covered because it's it, we, we all know these myths very well um, and they're the stuff of Hollywood biographies and tell-all uh, bestsellers. But I, I struggled, actually. So this, surely this can't be as uh, a new ground as all that. This, guys, someone, other films of this 
there must have been I'm struggling oodles to think of oodles, um, surely. You would think so, wouldn't you? Maybe it's just one of those topics that Hollywood traditionally has avoided because it is somewhat rampant. Too close to and home, And I think that yeah. it's, it's, it's almost a trope rather than, a, yeah. than anything else. It's one yes, of those things that pops cliche, up yeah. all the time in Hollywood films. But there are know, some... I mean, I, we won't mention any of the rumours here on air because that could get us into all sorts of trouble. <laughs> but, you know, you can spend a bit of time on Google and there are a hell of a lot of stories about the casting couch. Well, it's interesting you mentioned Cronenberg at the top of the, the segment because I don't think this film is Cronenbergian at all, really. Well, not in the way that I think the film wants it to be, which is the body horror aspect. But in some ways, it's more maps to the stars, Cronenberg, in terms yes, of absolutely, you know, teasing out the idea of the entertainment industry as this kind of illicit, incestuous, and very sort of scary, dark underbelly. I think I mentioned Cronenberg for for me. I, I said Cronenberg in terms of transformation. Yep. I think tr- Cronenberg makes films about transforming, and I think that this is a film about transformation. I think that that's what this film is about um, and the fantasy I've, I've seen this film this is the second time that I've seen it and I had a very different experience watching it the second time the first time I took it very straight uh, the second time the lines between reality and fantasy were much blurrier and this this process of transformation was much more complex for me the second time around in, in a kind of cronenberg way Starry Eyes it's available now on DVD and Blu-ray through Monster Pictures Three Triple ah. We're going to take a look now at one of the documentaries playing at the Festival of German Films. The documentary is the full title, From Caligari to Hitler, German Cinema in the Age of the Masses. Cerise, put this in context for us. Thanks, Thomas. Uh, From director (laughs) Rudiger Suxland. This is a documentary on the two-hour mark, uh, taking certain chapters from Siegfried Krakow's book of the same name and Krakow's hypothesis was that there was an awful lot in the cinema of the interwar years uh, from Germany that foretokened fascism, uh, the rise of Hitler and all of the ensuing horrors. Uh, this documentary really hones in on that interwar era, notwithstanding that the book itself, I believe, covered from the very birth of cinema onwards. Uh, while this film grapples uh, with a number of uh, Krakauer's um, theories about film, he was a, a film critic, but also a social critic. He was a um, now the term from, from from the Frankfurt School, a critical theorist. I think was the the, the a title, perhaps a job title that didn't exist before the Frankfurt School. Not literally a school, but I think largely based in one particular institution. <laughs> We're learning tonight. Oh, well, aren't we though? In a roundabout sort of but way. There was, a, there was a real scene there in Frankfurt. There was a, it was scene. a very intellectual scene. Yeah, left wing yeah. avant garde had had taken root there, and yep. uh, Krakow along with uh, Walter Benjamin. Um, that J is not a soft J, folks. It's more a German Y. Benjamin. Benjamin. Yep. Yeah. Who wrote extensively on modernity? Yes. Well, yep. all of them. This was really what they were. All uh, fascinated by the, the the city, the metropolis, the, mm. the new way of life. The um, it sounds bad, the English translation in this, but he saw the Weimar Republic era uh, Germany as being an employee culture. It sounds really rather lame, but it's, it's true. That's uh, it was the less of the bourgeoisie bring on the moneyed people, the salaried people, the people who have steady jobs and need to be entertained of an evening. Uh, notwithstanding that hyperinflation was kind of an issue at the time. But then 
So I believe everyone felt very compelled to spend all their money as soon as they ever received any because it might be worthless tomorrow. And so we party. And that's why you wanted to be in Berlin in the 1920s and 30s. Just just quickly, if if you've seen the film Cabaret, that kind of presents a reasonably good impression of what that era is all about. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Now, we get... Actually, the clips in this documentary are wonderful. Not just that the films they're drawn from are wonderful, because it was a golden age of cinema, but they're actually clearly all being cleaned up a lot. There's there's barely a bad, jumpy clip in this at all, scratchy. Though it, it's stunning. So you can see clips from masters like Lang and Murnau and Lubitsch, but also a lot of other rather less celebrated filmmakers of the period, including some I'd never heard of, who, whose work I'm now desperately keen to check out. Uh, all, all just looking glorious, just bouncing off the, the screen as as various of Krakow's uh, as, as little clues to the, the rise of fascism are found in uh, the, the sinister tyrants and seductive villains of films like the Mabusa trilogy or especially, and hence the title of this film and the book it's taken from uh, Dr Caligari um, a, a charismatic nutcase who can control sleepwalking people and have them do his dreadful bidding. Not to be confused with calamari, the seafood. Yeah. I'm just going to put that out there. I want people to learn. <laughs> I'll take responsibility for that gag. I thought we were going to get yeah. through tonight without that. I but just I... had to get it out okay. now, or else it was going to come up when I didn't expect yeah. it. Yeah, please continue, Cerise. <laughs> I'm look, sorry. I'm... Welcome back. Yeah, thank you. And, uh, <laughs> look, some other wonderful Krakow-esque uh, coinages. The mass ornament, uh, a term to describe both the choreography employed by the likes of Ernst Lubitsch in some of his films, but also uh, indicative of just the the energy of of so many bodies in motion in the cities of this um, exciting and yet sometimes also dreadful period. Uh, There comes a point in this documentary where it frustrates a little because it starts to sort of just become a bit of sort of an encyclopedia, you might say, rather than really finding threads to join all of the films and stars it covers. But then, I mean, you couldn't really cover German cinema of this period without bringing Louise Brooks in uh, G.W. Pabst to the fore. Or, I mean, Marlene Dietrich is almost a footnote in this film, which is almost an outrage, really. And... Uh, Almost uh, um, completely overlooked and especially outrageous given the premise of this film. The mountain films, uh, the the ultimate Aryan fantasy, uh, I mean, extraordinary extraordinary cinema and, and breathtaking stunt work in them. And, um, but Arnold Fank was this uh, a filmmaker who employed as his leading star lit of the period one Lenny Riefenstahl, who again is just altogether too much of a footnote in this film, but she was Hitler's filmmaker only so many years later. And that I just want to quickly uh, jump in, though, uh, and say uh, Arnold uh, Funk, is, yeah. uh, his film, one of his films appears in Clouds of Sils Maria, which oh. is actually currently in cinemas right now. He, oh, okay. he shot in the same region where that film was made, so you get to see some of his film in, in that, yeah. which is a nice tie-in. Do I get to have a quick minute's gloat? Good. Uh, in Berlin the other week, I saw one of his films on a spectacular 35mm print with a live score, and Lenny and uh, The Peril and The Magnificence, and uh, these films are just so gobsmacking. The, the whole Aryan fantasy is there, and you, you get a real foretokening of the fascist dream to come, but 
Bloody hell, those films are extraordinary. Mm. Stunt work today looks positively pedestrian by comparison, often times. Yeah, I had mixed feelings about this documentary. This is one of my favourite periods of filmmaking, although I often make the mistake of assuming all Weimar period films are German expressionists. And, I, and this doco actually goes to great lengths to say it wasn't just German expressionism. So just very quickly, German expressionism is all the dark shadows and angular buildings, very psychological cinema. It basically created the look of science fiction and horror as we still know it today, partly because it was very influential artistically, partly because all the great filmmakers fled Germany when Nazism came to power and um, went to Hollywood and you know, redefined science fiction, horror and film noir. Um, so I did like the fact that this film actually points out the importance of that movement but also that there was a lot of social realist films that we often don't think about and that the Weimar era there was a lot of poverty as well it wasn't just all, all partying for sort of the bourgeois there were a lot of people doing ex- extremely tough um but yeah, I, I found this a little dry. I felt like in the end it wasn't doing, it wasn't pulling all the connections together that it could have between all the films. It was just so determined to cover everything. And I don't know if it ever really grappled with the key thesis of um, of Krakow's. And it, I mean, I think Krakow has been fairly widely. It, it's a really important book, and his writing is very important. But I think it's sort of been wi- fairly widely dismissed now as it wasn't quite as simple as he proposed that these films preempted Nazism um, or sort of you know either were an expression. <laughs> was either an expression of what was to come or Freudian kind of slip. created a mass cultural context. Thank you, yeah. Sorry. For what was to come. I mean, the, 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 what Nazis did to culture was either destroy it, and they hated the excess of Weimar and you know what they saw as decadent art, or they horribly appropriated it for their own propaganda. I mean, they wanted Fritz Lang to make films for them because they had these crazy interpretations of films like Metropolis as being pro- how to manipulate the people for a fascist end. I mean, that's why Fritz Lang got the hell out of Germany. He realised, I don't want to work for the Nazis, and I sure as hell don't want to tell them I don't want to work for them. Um, so, look, I think this is, this is a good film. I, 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 like, I love seeing all this footage. You know, I, I'm in love with this, this, this era. But, yeah, I found it a little dry. I'm, I'm with you. I mean, this is pretty much my equivalent of a Monsters of Rock tour. You line those names up together. Ernst Lubitsch, Fritz Lang, Peter Lorre, Marlena Dietrich, Louise Brooks. Oh, look, I'm having a nosebleed. Like, it's so exciting to see all of those films together in one place in a, in a, in a historical narrative. But again, Cerise, like you mentioned, when you bring in people like... Um, uh, Robert Reinhardt's 1919 film Nervin, which, yeah, which is on YouTube. There's a crappy print of it on YouTube, and I've only ever seen it there. But to see this beautiful print and have the context around it was really emotional. And having it next to these more well-known films, I found really fantastic. I also really liked the talking heads in this film, both... Um, uh, Thomas Elsesse, the uh, German film historian and academic who was here at ACME last year. He's a remarkable man. Um, and one of my favourite contemporary German filmmakers, Volker uh, Schlendorf, um, has some interesting things to say. So seeing those guys talk about this stuff was just just so rock and roll, like really exciting and really interesting. That all being said, I am with you. This this In terms of a documentary on national cinema, it's not, not quite Hollywood. I mean, it's 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 it felt to me in places it almost had a sort of PowerPoint aesthetic. It it it's very clearly has a didactic tone, um, which 
think the material is so interesting and so fascinating that it, it, it almost rises above it. But in terms of uh, a documentary, you know, how does it stand as a documentary in its own merits? Eh, it's pretty pedestrian. But, I mean, I just found the content so fascinating. I actually really dug this documentary. Um, although I acknowledge the criticisms of, you've made are completely valid, particularly given I think it's impossible to do justice to this period of cinema, let alone Krakow's you know, quite substantial tome in two hours or less when you're showing clips from much of the, the content as well. But this sent me into a note frenzy. I was taking notes on films to revisit films I hadn't seen, theorists to, to come back to. Um, and I think I was very much sympathetic to this documentary and to Krakow because he approaches cinema in the same way that, that I predominantly do, and that is cinema as a cultural unconscious. And I think if, if that's what you take away, I think this documentary does a really convincing job of pulling off that thesis of showing how the symbols of a post-World War I Germany uh, were there in the presence. Almost this, this strange ambivalence between a yearning for that autocratic figure and, and being afraid of the, of the paternal figure as well, the autocratic figure. And the recurrence of certain symbols like the gloved hand, the hand over the city, the sense of being under a machine. The, you know, he describes it in really interesting terms in, in terms of the Weimar Republic and the cinema of the Weimar Republic as being caught between the mythical and the modern, between utopias and horrors and transgressions, between doppelgangers and loners. And I think in terms of the scope that the documentary had to work with, in terms of covering arguably too much, I thought it did a really interesting job of pulling it off. And one of the names that that really struck me was one that we covered, a director we covered recently on the show, and that was Robert Seardmack. And we, we talked about his film The Killers recently, and here we have Robert Seardmack with a script by Billy Wilder called People on Sunday, which is four people going on a picnic and swimming by the lakes, getting out of town for a day. And it was like, wow, this is remarkable. And again, as you mentioned, Thomas, you can start to see the seeds of so much that would then migrate, and that's really how the documentary ends. It's like, look at the mass migration of, of the talent from this era and the influence they had. You know, you can start to see the seeds of, of what would become almost the kind of next golden age of Hollywood cinema. And I, I, I loved it. I mean, I think it's a, it's a taster documentary more than a comprehensive overview. But it's a I great think, way to describe it. But I think mm. that's a, it's an important documentary in as much as it does that. Yeah, uh, there is a, a really clunky framing uh, device. I mean, we, we meet two of the girls from People on Sunday at the very beginning of the film and we're told, we're assured, in fact, these, these two young flappers that will meet them again later. And in the course of a two-hour documentary, I think we meet them twice more only and nothing really is made of it. It's just, it's just all a bit, that's a bit pointless. Do you, you think know? the filmmaker was trying to be a little bit Mark Cousins? Because there was a... Yep. Was it that vibe? He was trying to be a little bit poetic and it kind was of. German Mark yeah. Cousins. Yeah. yeah, but didn't quite pull off, I don't think. Only Mark Cousins can do Mark Cousins. <laughs> Particularly that accent that Mark Cousins has. Yep. Oh, would you like to attempt it? <laughs> no, I, no, I know you love a funny accent, Josh. Come on. Well, we placed a ban on bad accents a long, long time. Oh, Tara's no longer on the show. We can do many accents it's, as it's we like. I'm not going to no, try we, a strange, we, we should mutated on, we should Irish agreement. That, that, that roll call at the very end of the film of all the filmmakers who left Germany was, was amazing. Because really it, moving. It does show you... Well, it was tragic for a mm. start, but it does show you how so much of modern cinema and you know, classical Hollywood was devi- defined by these filmmakers. Although I don't think Douglas Circles mentioned. I think people forget that he was part of all that as well and he had to yeah i, I don't know maybe he, di- he didn't have a filmmaking career in germany first but uh, I know holland holland 
Holland. Oh, hang on, I'm going to furiously look I online. He, um, yeah, I'm not sure. I think you might be right. He's a German film director, so yeah. But I think the career beforehand may have been in Holland. I it? think you're right. He, yeah. Yes, he, he was but German, he did, but he's film. Did make a film about Nazis, at least one. The hang, uh, Hangman also die. Is that his or is that Lang's? Because he made one That's with a similar Langer. title. They That's all, Langer. Well, Cirque had uh, told the same story, I believe, in another film with a similar title, which um, isn't going to come to me right now. But Cirque went back, didn't he? Yeah, did but he so went, did Lang. Did Lang go back as well? Eventually, yeah. In the 50s. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's Cirque actually one of the footnotes is the yeah, credits roll too. That, yeah. Oh, yeah. does it really? Hmm. Cirque made something with Fazbinder from memory, is that right? He came back and worked with <laughs> wow, a lot of prognosticating. <laughs> <laughs> uh, one, actually, speaking of Langnell, one of the other interesting sections of the film, which they devote quite a substantial amount of time to, is the differences between Fritz Lang and Murnau. And I thought that was a really interesting section in terms of he, he offers up Fritz Lang in this strange dichotomy of order and chaos and, and comes back to Metropolis and, and even opens up Metropolis as a film that is ambiguous in terms of its political ideologies. And then the thing that fascinated me most, which I'd never really thought of to my shame in terms of his analysis of Murnau, is this idea of bourgeois masculinity in crisis, particularly in terms of Faust and Nosferatu. And I thought that was a really, that was a really wonderfully teased out section in terms of a comparison between those key defining figures from that, from that moment. I thought the the Busse stuff was really strong too. Yeah, very much so. And look, if nothing else, you get to see some of those clips from M and you know and, and Louise Met- Brooks. Metropolis and Louise Brooks and Louise Brooks and Louise Brooks. Gone and the effect that Louise Brooks has. Are you okay? <laughs> and yeah. Let's move on before we get any more awkward than we have already. <laughs> From Caligari to Hitler, German cinema... Oh, Louise Brooks. From Caligari to Hitler, German cinema in the age of the masses. That's going to screen a couple of times during the Audi Festival of German Films. For more information and screening times... And Louise Brooks. And Louise Brooks. Go to goethe.de forward slash ozfilmfest. Tonight on Plato's Cave, we also talked about Ex Machina. That's screening at Cinema Nova, courtesy of Universal Pictures. And Starry Eyes is available on DVD and Blu-ray through Monster Pictures. You've been listening to Thomas, Josh, Cerise and Louise Brooks. Alexandra with gratuitous references to Louise Brooks. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.